0: in 1st Timothy chapter 2 today. Go ahead and join me there. So we saw in chapter 1 that uh, Paul's primary purpose and Timothy's primary focus was on addressing some false teaching that was taking place in the church. We had these men and as we'll see next week probably... Um, possibly some women who were teaching things that were contrary to sound doctrine, contrary to the gospel, and so Paul leaves Timothy there to address that. We've covered that the last couple of weeks. He's going to come back to that topic again in the letter, but he focuses on something different in chapters 2 and 3. This letter, as we initially mentioned in our introduction, focused on things like false teaching, but also proper behavior within God's church. And what I mean by that is in the body of Christ. And so Paul is now going to transition from the false teaching, addressing that, into some behavioral issues that he ultimately saw at the church. And he'll get into that as he um, gets a little bit further into chapter 2, starting in verse 8 and then through the rest of that. But before he does that, he's going to address the idea of prayer. And so it's a more general so he kind of goes from false teaching into this general concept of prayer and what he expects of believers into then specific problems within the church. But this discussion of prayer today falls into that category of proper behavior within the church. And so all of chapter 2, most of chapter 3 is going to deal with behavior. What should we expect of our behavior within the Christian church? And so we're going to look at two primary things today. And it's pretty simple. The outline's pretty simple. So we look at chapter 2. Paul's going to talk about prayer. And he's going to urge the Ephesians, and likewise us, to pray for all people. He's going to say we're supposed to pray for them for our sake. And then he's going to tell us to pray for them for their sake. So we're going to go ahead and break it down into just those two sections today. So Paul urges the Ephesians and us to pray for all people for our sake. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So the first charge here is that we are to pray for all people, and we're to do so for our own benefit. Now that may sound contradictory, but we'll get into that, we'll kind of... Ferret that out. Paul uses, you'll notice here, four different words for prayer in the beginning of this, in verse 1. And for the most part, they're synonyms, but, you know, even with synonyms, there's slight nuances or slight differences between those words. He's not just deciding to repeat words. The first one there... Petitions generally refers to begging or pleading for something, petitioning for something. You know, we use that word even outside of the Christian church, petitioning for things. You know, when we'll you sign this petition, we're trying to move people along with something. We see it in politics as well. So, petitions, he's referring here to calling out to God, begging him, or pleading with him based on some presumed need. We do that on Sunday mornings here because when we get done with our. Our second time of singing today, you'll notice we do a time of prayer requests. We ask what your needs might be, and then we petition the Lord on behalf of those needs. We ask Him to take care of those needs. And so that's the first thing Paul says here, that petition, or I'm sorry, entreaties um, and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings. That word petition is just that. Another word he uses there, prayers. That's the more general term. It's just sort of a, a catch all. Okay? Just pray. The third term, not necessarily in the order of the text, but requests. This word for requests refers to interceding on somebody's behalf. So it's kind of like petitioning, but it kind of takes it a step further. You're actually putting yourself in the place of that individual and praying for them on behalf of their needs before God. You're sort of interceding for them. You know, Jesus Christ is our mediator. He's an intercessor for us. He between us and our Heavenly Father and that's sort of this idea here these requests it's interceding on behalf of somebody and so think of it maybe you know somebody's hurting or somebody's struggling and so you get down on your knees and you beg God on behalf of them to take care of those needs a third, or a fourth term that he uses here is thanksgiving that's kind of self-explanatory um, it just refers to expressing gratitude and so he Gives us these four words here. In essence, what he's really doing is he's just suggesting a thoroughness to how we pray. We ought to pray completely, thoroughly. We ought to be lifting up petitions and prayers and requests and offering thanksgiving. But you notice, there's a phrase there. Be made on behalf of all men. Be made on behalf of all men. He's not talking here just about the church. We're good at that. Right? We pray for each other all the time. There's over 150 references in the New Testament to prayer. Um, we're told to pray for ourselves. We're told to pray for others. We're even told to pray for those who persecute us. There's no question that the Bible calls us to pray. And here, Paul specifically calls on the Ephesians, calls on us to pray on behalf of all men. Now, that's a word that is best probably translated as everyone. He's not talking again here about, well, pray on behalf of just all people in the church. That word for man there, or men, is just a universal term meaning people, in this particular case. And so he's calling on them to pray specifically for everyone. Not just believers within the church, but even those outside. Now, he doesn't specifically tell us what the content should be but he kind of narrows in a little bit of a focus here doesn't he look at verse 2 he says for kings and all who are in authority for kings and all who are in authority so he puts a special emphasis on praying for those who are in positions of authority over all men so who would that be in our case it's governors and city officials and Federal officials, right? In Paul's day, it was kings and governors and, and others as well. So, Paul is calling on us to pray for all people, to intercede on their behalf, but especially to pray for those who are in authority over us. That's further interesting. Until you realize, remember, Jesus said we're supposed to pray for our enemies and, and other things. It's not so stark or so startling. But we're to be doing that. But there's this phrase at the end of that that kind of gives us a picture of why we're supposed to pray for them, at least initially. You notice what it says? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we're supposed to be praying for the people around us, unsaved, we're specifically supposed to pray for those in authority, positions of authority, leadership, so that we could live a life like he describes here. Tranquil and quiet and godliness and dignity. Let's go ahead and break that down. Um, Tranquil and quiet are essentially synonyms, but the word tranquil actually suggests freedom from external disturbances. The word quiet is sort of the opposite in that it suggests peace or calm that comes from within. So Paul is saying, pray that we might be able to live tranquil and quiet lives. We shouldn't have a lot of disturbance or stressors that come from the outside, but we should also be able to be at peace from the inside as well. Not stressing out, not frustrated, not worried. But he also goes on and says that we might do it in all godliness and dignity. Those two words go hand in hand as well. Godliness refers to devoting oneself to behavior that honors God, where dignity refers to behavior befitting Christ. And so when you kind of put those together, what Paul is actually saying is that we are to pray for others, the world around us, specifically authorities, so that we might live a life that has as little external strife and internal turmoil as possible so that we might continue to live our lives in a way that is characterized by faith in Christ. Let me repeat that. Paul is praying, or asking us to pray for those around us so that we can live a life that has as little external strife and internal turmoil as possible so that we can live a life characterized by our Christian faith. Elsewhere, Paul says that this should be our ambition. I want you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter four. We should desire that kind of life. First Thessalonians chapter four. Jump down to verse nine. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's the easy part, right? Well, I don't know if everybody would agree that loving. Our brothers and sisters in Christ is always easy, but, you know, comparatively, (laughs) it should be, right? For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward who? Outsiders and not be in any need. So Paul starts off here by saying that this ought to be our ambition, to live that kind of life, a quiet, tranquil life. We're able to work with our hands and keep our noses clean and be able to have as little external strife. He says here that we ought to be able to to have this life um, just as he commanded us, among outsiders, those outside the church. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, look at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Who are those? Those are generally outside the church. I'm not sure that this context of chapter 12 means only those outside. Could come from those inside, but anybody who persecutes us, we are supposed to bless them and not curse them, he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Again, this phrase all men is a reference to those not just in the church, but outside the church. We ought to be trying as best we can to be at peace with those outside the walls of the church. Be at peace with all men, as far as it depends on you. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals about his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to just focus briefly on that idea here of, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is kind of repeated if you go to Hebrews. Turn there with me briefly. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Jumped out of verse 14. Pursue peace. With who? With all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble, and by it may be defiled. So he says here again, pursue peace with all men. And so we have these various passages that tell us that we ought to be seeking a tranquil life, a life of peace, tranquility, Not a lot of external strife. Not a lot of internal strife. We ought to be able to live out our faith with godliness and sincerity. As best we can, we should try to be at peace with those outside of the walls of the Christian church. It's kind of difficult to do that, though, isn't it? Jesus said that we're going to be hated. They're our enemies. So how in the world do we do that? Paul kind of tells us that in Ephesians. or I'm sorry, in, uh, when he's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of First Timothy. He begins by telling us, pray. And he tells us to pray for them so that we might be able to live a quiet and tranquil life. What's our takeaway with this? It's pretty simple. If you're not already praying for the world around us, if we are not already praying for kings and governors and presidents and congress and all those who are in authority, those who make our laws, those who enforce the laws, if we're not doing that already, we ought to be for our own sake. Because in this instance, it's not about them, it's about us. Because it's good for us to desire to be at peace. It's good for us to desire a tranquil life, a quiet life. We've seen that. I don't have to tell you that that's becoming more and more difficult here, do I? You know, we used to live in a place where one of the most widely respected careers was that of being a pastor. That's now on a list of some 40 professions I saw recently, down to like number 25 or number 26. Not respected. Used to be that... Upholding morals and Christian standards, even among the unsaved, was seen as a good thing. Now it's mocked and ridiculed. I was reading an article this week about, um, you know, there are certain things happening in our world today that stand out, maybe because they get media attention, maybe because we're more sensitive to them now, as we should be, but we see what's kind of going on with School systems and the number of Christian parents that have now been standing up at school board meetings challenging the school board for books that are found in the library things that are promoted things that are taught in the classroom I watched a video of a young man I think he was 11 years old yesterday reading a from a book that he found in his library that was graphic standing in front of his school board reading it to them and almost no reaction but what's the point what's the big deal Um, It was purely pornographic. There was another woman I saw that um, somebody had complained in a tweet, and a teacher had responded about those Christo fascists. Who do you think she's referring to? Christian parents. I watched another video earlier in the week of an individual who was part of the DEI, part of the school, you know, the whole diversity stuff. And a parent pretended, I think it was a Project Veritas video, kind of pretended that they wanted to put their kids in that school and wanted to talk about, well, is this school open to the whole, you know, racism stuff and all that? And he just very calmly said, well, you know, yeah, we don't teach that here. Wink, wink. And then talked about how, but there's ten other ways we can accomplish that. We talk about it in the hallways. And he went on to talk about how they can circumvent the rights and authorities of the parents. So we're living at a time where it's getting more and more difficult for us. So what should we do? You know, we have legal rights here. We have certain things we ought to do. We have freedom of speech, supposedly. So we ought to speak up on things like that. Absolutely. No question about that. But Paul calls us to pray for them. And part of the reason we want to pray for them is so that we can continue to live out our lives. We can continue to parent our children as Christian parents. Raise them the way that we want to raise them. We ought to be able to live our lives as Christians openly in front of the world. And one of the ways that we can do that is to pray. And when we pray, to say, Lord, we want to pray for those around us that their hearts are still tender, that their hearts are still soft, that they still allow us. to live out our Christian faith to exercise the faith that we have in Christ we might be able to live lives of tranquility, meaning no pressure from the outside no force upon us I was reading another article about Jack Phillips, you all know who Jack Phillips is the baker from, is it Oregon? or Washington? what's that? Colorado, is that where it is? okay, Colorado Um, you know, for ten years now I mean, this guy's gone to court. He's a cake baker, and they want him to make a cake to celebrate immorality. And um, he's, he went all the way to the Supreme Court at one point where they ruled in his favor. Well, then somebody else came out and sued him again, and so he just lost in the Supreme Court of Colorado because they're trying to get him to do some stuff again to violate his faith. Ultimately, this will go to the Supreme Court as well, and maybe the Supreme Court will issue a much wider ruling. But... Um, we see this stuff all the time where it's not just about living out our faith. It's now, no, we want you to live out something else. And we want you to do something else that's contrary to your faith. There's no question that's what we're facing today, folks. So we pray. Pray for those outside. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. I was struck by a passage from Jeremiah um, when the Hebrews were taken off into exile, they had to spend 70 years Or You know the story. Daniel's there with them. But there's a rather interesting statement. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. I want you to see something here. Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 9 to give you the context here. But Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. The priests, the prophets, and all the people from Nebuch- or whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into ex- exile from Jerusalem Jerusalem to Babylon. So here they are, the Jews are in Babylon, a pagan nation. They went from Jerusalem, where they could live out their faith, to now into Babylon, chapter verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah, and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and uh, Jeremiah the son of, I hate these words, Hilkiah. They could have had better names, right? Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is now the Lord speaking to those exiles who are in Babylon. He says, build houses and live in them and plant gardens And eat their produce. In other words, become, you know, go about your business, okay? Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. But then look at this. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In other words, pray for the Babylonians. These were their enemies. These are people that took them into captivity. They were brutal, and yet he says, "Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare." In other words, he's calling on them, basically go about their business, still have children, still grow your crops, still have your business, whatever you can, whatever you can do there. But pray on behalf of the city you're in, pray for its welfare, because in its welfare you'll experience welfare as well. And that's really kind of true, is it not? One of the reasons we might want, say, the USA as a whole to thrive is because it benefits us. Think about what the church has been able to do over the last 200 years because of what God did with this nation the resources, the finances. We have brought the gospel from the American shores out to the rest of the world, partly because of the prosperity that God brought to the United States. And so one of the reasons we might want to pray for our country and for our city and for for rulers and that is, is not so much that we can be fat and happy, but that we might be able to live out our faith because that is one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have is seeing the church. When the persecution comes, and that is shut down in many respects, we lose a fairly powerful voice, do we not? Think about in places all over the world where the church has been forced underground, where they're doing just everything they can just to worship on their own. I was reading a story about how in North Korea, sometimes they go out in boats into the middle of, the, into the middle of um, lakes and streams, two, three, four people at a time pretending they're fishing just so they can worship. Because there, just being known as a Christian, you're stuck in the gulag. And so, it's not that we're praying just so that we have a good life. But there is an element of God wants us to be able to live in a tranquil way, a quiet way. And we should pray for those around us that God might allow that to continue to happen. There's no question that even the unsaved, when they are at least tolerant or open to Christian values and Christians, things go much easier for us. But we also, hopefully, take advantage of that and live our lives out there as a testimony to the goodness of Christ and the gospel. And so we ought to be praying for that. So we should pray for our country, governing officials, political leaders, the unsaved all around us, for our sake. It's good for the church. Now, it's not good for the church when we just decide to be fat and happy. That's not the point. Because he says that we should not only lead a tranquil and quiet life, but we should do it in all godliness and dignity, which means we're living in a way that honors Christ in our culture and society as a tool of witness to them. So, if we're not already praying for unsaved people around us, if we're not praying for government officials and others that set policy and rules, we, we ought to be. And I'll admit, um, I don't do that enough. In fact, I'm about six weeks ahead had my study here, and so about six weeks ago as I went through this, I felt convicted. I said, Lord, I don't do that, and I need to. And so, that's become part of my morning routine now getting longer because I found some stuff in First Kings that maybe do the same thing and so that list is getting longer and so we ought to be doing that Jesus said to pray for our enemies and in many respects that's what we're doing so that's the first thing is that we ought to pray for the unsaved around us especially those in authority for our own sake as the body of Christ Paul then goes on though and he reminds us that we shouldn't just be praying for them For our sake, but even for their own sake. Look at verses 3-7. through I'm going to read it and then we're going to come back and digest it. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There are three things, I believe, three reasons here that Paul gives for praying specifically for the unsaved, for our leaders, for their sake. The first one is that it basically is something God desires. He desires all people to be saved. That's our first reason for praying for these people. Look at verse 3 again. It says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God and Savior. Good there is the idea of moral goodness. In other words, it's a moral thing. It's morally good to pray for these people. Because it's something that pleases God. It says, It's acceptable to Him. That means it's something that's pleasing to Him. The reason why it's pleasing for Him is found in verse 4. Look at that. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? That's the Lord's heart. I think sometimes we maybe forget that. I think I've shared this before. You know, when when we see stuff that's going around today, when I read that article the other day, and I saw the woman respond with those Christo fascists, my first response is, you just want to poke her in the eye, you know? Because the first response is anger, resentment then you got to stop and say, you know, she needs Christ just as much as I do. That's the reality of it. And nothing would please the Lord more than to see her saved. To become one of those Christos, Christos you know, fascists that she currently hates. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32 says, this is the Lord speaking, For I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. That's the heart of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. He was so tolerant with Israel, and even Israel's enemies in many respects. Because he didn't take pleasure in anybody dying. In fact, things like the flood, when he had to wipe out mankind, didn't thrill God to do that. So we see that throughout the Bible. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's patient with mankind. Um, He doesn't want anyone to perish. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 warned Israel, He said, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there's no other. At the heart and soul of who God is is a desire to see all men saved. Plain and simple. We talked about that multiple times as we looked at Peter's words from Second Second Peter where he's talking about or, or talking to those who are sort of mocking the thought of Jesus Christ returning and, he's, and they're saying but where is he? He promised to come back he's not here yet and Peter has to remind him the Lord's not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but all to come to repentance you've heard me say this before in fact I just saw it again this last week I was reading through a Dispensational Theology um, Facebook group and somebody was talking about the rapture and um, the way that it had come off was a very judgmental sort of a thing and somebody in the group said gee, you know that's the wrong attitude you realize when Christ comes back and raptures the church judgment begins for everybody else don't you think his words were don't you think you ought to have some kind of compassion on those people maybe we can be a little more patient maybe we can wait a little longer for Jesus to come back knowing That's what God wants. That's why he's delayed. That's why we've been waiting 2,000 years. Because God is patient and doesn't want anybody to perish. So he's giving opportunity. He's giving time. It will come. Not everybody will be with God in glory. Some are going to perish. Many are going to perish. And God knows that. And so he's patient. He's waiting. And so one of the reasons that we ought to pray for their sake is because God wants them to be saved. So we ought to be praying that. So one of our motivations is that God desires people to be saved. We ought to be praying for him. Second reason we're to pray for all people is because Jesus died for all people. We sometimes forget that, I think. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So there's one mediator, only one way to salvation for everyone. There's not one way for us, one way for somebody else. It's only one way. It's only by the name of Jesus Christ that people can be saved. People see that maybe as judgmental, narrow minded. But you have to realize it's the easiest way to get saved. It's the only way to get saved. That's why God did it that way. He said, I'm not going to rely on you to save yourselves. I'm going to do it, make it really easy for you, by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And so one of the reasons we ought to be praying for those around us is because there is only one way. He's the mediator. He died for all people. We can get into the whole Calvinist debate did Jesus die for just the elect or did he, no? he died for everyone it says all people Jesus said, come all who are weary we can debate election and free will later but the reality of it is Jesus Christ died for everyone the free gift is available to everyone verse 6 says he gave himself a ransom for all Think about the example Jesus Christ himself set. Turn to Luke chapter 23. There are two examples I want to share with us. Luke chapter 23. You know this verse. We're coming close to Good Friday and Easter here in the next month or so. You remember what Jesus said when they were getting ready to crucify him? Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, but Jesus was saying, you notice it says there was saying it Doesn't say Jesus said it says Jesus was saying, it means he probably repeated it, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The compassion of Christ, this is God in the flesh looking at these people who are crucifying Him, asking God the Father, forgive them because they're idiots." They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. That's the compassion of God. That's why we pray. In fact, maybe we ought to pray the same thing. Lord, when we don't agree with what we see happening in our culture and our society around us, when we see what they're doing to children today, and when we see what, what's happening in culture society, we look at the rules that are being created, we look at the way people are behaving, we can look at them with judgment, we can look at them and shake our finger at them, But maybe in our heart we ought to be looking at them saying, man, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I know that's hard for us because we should speak out against those things. Jesus did. And he never lost sight of the compassion and recognizing that people are sheep. They don't know what they're doing. We didn't know what we were doing before we came to Christ, did we? I certainly didn't. And here we have Jesus on the cross. And they don't know what they're doing. There's another example, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Remember Stephen? Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, Stephen. Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at his feet of a young man named Saul... They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. While he's being stoned, he's crying out to the Lord. Don't hold them guilty of this. Why? He probably learned a lesson from Christ. They're ignorant. I wonder sometimes I have trouble holding my tongue and I'm not being stoned. <laughs> I have trouble holding my tongue sometimes when I just hear about things or it doesn't involve me and I get irritated at what I see and so maybe I don't speak the way that I should or there's been times I've gotten three quarters of the way through a Facebook post and i oh, I can't do that. <laughs> maybe that crosses the line. I think I get real close to that line sometimes in trying to be funny or snarky or point something out and I am not think that's always wrong to, because we're supposed to speak out we're supposed to point out things we should be bold and confrontational in some respects but we can't lose sight of the fact that many of them don't know what they're doing they're still guilty of sin they'll be held accountable for that sin but thankfully the Lord was patient with me Brought me to Christ. And so we have these great examples here with Jesus and Stephen. Both praying for the people that are persecuting them. So we should pray for the world around us as Jesus and Stephen did. Because Jesus died for them just like he did us. The last thing we see here with the last reason Paul gave for praying for all people is because it helps further, and this all fits together, it helps further the spread and acceptance of the gospel. Look at verse 7 there in chapter 2. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, you may not see the connection I'm making here, but Paul throws this in, that I was appointed a preacher and a teacher of the gospel. And why would he say that in the midst of calling on them to pray for all people? Because Paul knew and understood that the success that he would have in his ministry in preaching the gospel was dependent upon the prayers of the church. Plain and simple. Paul says that he was a herald here, somebody who would announce the gospel He was a preacher. He went out primarily to Gentiles. I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and look what Paul does. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from the perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Notice the the two things there. He says, pray that the gospel ultimately will spread, right? And then two, that he be saved from the generation of evil men around him. Kind of fits our context this morning. We ought to be praying those things. We ought to be praying for those who are on the front lines, We know missionaries. We know people who are out there. We ought to be praying. Lord, prepare the hearts and the minds of the people that they'll come in contact with and protect them from assault. We ought to pray for one another. You know, I routinely pray that God provides me with opportunities to share the gospel with people, Um, partly because I'm not an evangelist by gifting, and so I need the extra help, Lord. Open some doors somewhere, you know? Make it easy. And he doesn't fail to do that. He doesn't disappoint. Often providing opportunities exactly as I ask for them. We ought to be praying that the Lord till that soil so that the gospel will spread. Like the Ephesians, we ought to pray... Not just for people like Paul, but pray for one another, that God would give us opportunity. I think about each one of you and the opportunities you may or may not have in your daily lives. We ought to be praying. So Paul provides these three reasons why we ought to pray for their sake. So what's our takeaway with that? Well, the first takeaway was if you're not praying for the world around you, if you're not praying for leaders and authorities for our sake, you ought to start. But then secondly, we ought to be praying for their sake that the Lord might ultimately open their eyes that they might see we should pray that he might continue to be patient that he might not allow them to perish it's a hard thing sometimes for us to pray especially when we're riled up or we're persecuted or we're worked up or we see the stuff that's going on and think, gosh, these people are nuts am I the only one that thinks that when I see it? Am I the only one that gets riled up in my soul and my spirit and I just want to lash out and poke them? Thinking maybe a good swift smack up against the head would do them some good? Maybe it would. But if I'm not praying, probably not. God desires all to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. He died for all people. And in praying for them, it helps to further the spread of the gospel. You know, it's interesting. The Bible makes it clear that we're all called to pray. We're called to pray for one another. That's pretty clear. 1 Thessalonians 5 says we're to pray without ceasing. Colossians chapter 4 says we're supposed to devote ourselves to prayer. And we pray for a lot of things, don't we? We pray for our health. We pray for well-being. We pray for finances, trials and struggles that we face. How often do we pray, even in a general sense, for those outside When was the last time you prayed for President Biden or Congress or local elected leaders? When was the last time you saw the stories about what's happening with these school boards and actually prayed for the school boards? I'll be real honest. It doesn't happen all that frequently with me. But it should. And we need to, right? So pray. Pray. The first thing Paul addresses with the behavior of the church, I don't think it's a mistake that he starts with prayer. Isn't that interesting? He's going to deal with some issues within the church, some conflict with the men and some issues with the women. He's going to deal with leadership. He's going to deal with elders and deacons. He's dealt with false teaching. But the first topic he covers when he's dealing specifically with behavioral concerns he has within the church is prayer. It's to pray. It's interesting, it's one of the easiest things for us to do, but it's often sometimes one of the things that we neglect the most, is it not? Especially when it comes to praying for things outside of ourselves. It's easy to pray for the things we need, the things that we want. It's not always so easy to pray for those things outside of that and say, you know what, I need to start praying for others. So my call to us today is that we might take this to heart, that we might pray for the world around us, especially those in authority, for our sake as a church, meaning the body of Christ, but also for their sake knowing that they need Jesus Christ just like we did. Amen?